with Acts chapter 1, 12 to 14, for a sermon I've entitled, Waiting for the Spirit. We're going to actually back up to verse 9 just to get some context. And this is what it says. And after he, meaning Jesus, had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently in the sky, <clears throat> while he was going, behold, two men in white clothed beside, uh, stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, whom has been, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way that you have watched him go into heaven. And then our text this morning. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went into an upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and uh, Thomas and Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These were all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary and the, uh, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. You know, Samuel Beckett was an Irish-born writer, poet, and dramatist who, interestingly enough, fought with the French resistance in, against the occupying German forces in France. His most popular and strange play that he wrote was entitled Waiting for Godot. Now, the first act opens with a couple of tramp-like characters named Estragon and Vladimir meeting by a leafless tree at the end of the day. They're waiting for someone named Godot. They want to ask him something, but they don't remember what it is they want to ask him, but they're waiting just the same. Meanwhile, nothing is to be done. While waiting, they consider repenting, but they don't know what they are repenting for. They think about hanging themselves just to pass the time, but they decided against that. Should they leave? Perhaps Godot already came, and they don't remember it. As they're pondering life's existence, two men approach them, Pozo and uh, Lucky who Pozo keeps tied around the neck by a rope. Lucky remains silent except for when Pozo gives him commands like dance and think. And after he does a silly dance, Lucky's thinking causes him to spout a bunch of profound things that soon turn into gibberish. And so the three men beat Lucky into silence. After a while, Lucky and Pozo leave, and then a young boy comes and tells Vladimir and Esteragon that Godot would not be coming that day, but he will arrive tomorrow. Well, the first act closes with Vladimir and uh, Esteban waiting for Godot. The next day arrives, and Vladimir and Esteban are still waiting by the tree, but now there's a few more leaves on it. The men discuss the value of thought and ultimately decide it has little value. Pozo and Lucky come by again, but this time Pozo is blind, and he has to count on Lucky to lead him as they walk. When Lucky falls on po, uh, Pozo falls as well. And Vlad and uh, Estragon try to help him up, but they fall as well. Strangely, Pozo and Lucky do not remember our two tramps from the day before. Around this time, another boy arrives. Is it the same boy as yesterday? He has a message from Godot. He cannot arrive today, but he will surely come tomorrow. Vlad asks the boy, have you seen Godot? Yes, sir. What does he do, this Mr. Godot? He does nothing, sir. Does he have a beard? Yes, sir. Is it fair or black? I think it's white, sir. Tired, frustrated, confused, the two tramps want to leave. Instead, they just keep waiting, waiting 
for Godot. Now, can you believe they stretched that story into a two-hour play? Now, if you're thinking to yourself, that's a weird story and I don't know what I'm supposed to make of it, you are not alone. No one but the author himself knew what he was trying to communicate with the story, and Beckett never explained the meaning and refused to answer questions when people asked him, what's the point of that story? By the way, when it first played, it was very unpopular, and, and the audience reacted negatively to it. It was their negative reaction that actually made it more popular for other people to go see it. At one point, when they were considering, uh, in the play, considering hanging themselves, one guy in the audience yelled out, I got a rope, give it to him. <laughs> well, you know, many people have wondered about the meaning of that play. Uh, I mean, does the barren tree represent the meaninglessness of life? But if so... What do the leaves that start to appear represent? And Lucky's bag that he carries with him, one of them's filled with sand. Does that represent the burden of human existence? Hmm. Perhaps. And what of that rope that's around Lucky's neck? Pozo controls him by means of that rope. But there's a sense in which Vladimir and Estragon are still themselves tied to a rope, an invisible rope to Godot. Well, since Beckett lived among the French existentialists after the war, some think his story is nothing more than an absurd comedy, speaking of the absurdity of life. Vladimir and Estegan are waiting for Godot to tell them what the purpose of life is. But of course, Godot never arrives, which means that life is indeed meaningless and time passes without any significance. Now, others argue that Godot actually represents God. Earlier in the story, the two main characters are discussing Godot. And Eschaton uh, says to ask Vladimir uh, what he had requested from Godot. Vladimir said, oh, nothing very definite. Estegon, a kind of prayer? Vladimir, precisely. Estegon, a vague supplication? Vladimir, exactly. Well, in our story today, we have people who are waiting. Not for the arrival of some vague character named Godot, but for the coming of the Holy Spirit who would arrive in just a few days. And when he came, the purpose of their lives would become crystal clear as they served as witnesses of Jesus Christ, bringing the gospel to a last world. Well, these two verses, our three verses, speak of that 10-day period between Jesus' return to heaven and the coming of the Spirit on Pentecost. Today, we want to consider uh, what uh, these people who are gathered here and the reason for them gathering on that day. And then we're going to make some application to our own lives as well. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father, God, you to pray for grace and mercy. Help us see. It's just a few verses, but it's packed with truth uh, for your people today, even as it was in that day. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to ask just two questions. First of all, who was gathered that day and what were they gathering for? Those are two questions. So who was gathered? By the way, Albert Nelson Marquis, he was a Chicago publisher. He's best known for his Who's Who books. The first one was written in 1899. It was entitled Who's Who in America. Others in the series are Who's Who in Medicine, Who's Who in American Law. The books give short biography and lists of contributions of important people in various fields. You know, many organizations do that, though, don't they? They get together and uh, recognize the things that others have done. Think about the NFL Hall of Fame ceremonies, or the Academy Awards, the Nobel Prizes, or the Pulitzer Prize. Every year around this time in Davos, Switzerland, the World Economic Forum meets, with invitations going out to the elite leaders of the world in business and politics. They get together and discuss topics like how to reduce the world's population, 
how to lower the number of acres used in farmland, how to get people to eat bugs rather than meat. They put out a commercial a few years back where they show a man smiling and he's talking about the future and it says, you will own nothing and you will be happy. Well, you can attend that closed meeting if you're a member of the WEF. The costs range from $70,000 to $250,000 per person. So the list really is a who's who of the rich and powerful. Well, gathering in the text this morning here, the people gathered there were not the rich and the powerful, but they were the who's who of important people among the followers of Jesus. Now, Jesus had given them uh, their commission to be his witnesses, but he told them to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit would come upon them. After he descended with the, uh, ascended back with the clouds in heaven, we read in verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, the Mount of Olives is really more of a high hill. It's opposite of Jerusalem, which also is on an elevated plateau. Uh, Olivet is separated uh, from Jerusalem by the Kidron Valley, and it's about three-quarters of a mile. I've walked down it before. And so when Luke refers to it as being a Sabbath day's journey away, he doesn't mean it was on the Sabbath, but that was the amount of time that rabbis, or the amount of distance that rabbis uh, allowed you to cover on the Sabbath day. Now, it's likely that this upper room, when they entered into it, was the same room that Jesus and his disciples met in on that night that he was betrayed. But whether it was this room or another one, it must have been a fairly large one, because according to verse 15, it says there were 120 people gathered at this time. Now, we don't know the names of all of them, but Luke mentions a number of people who were gathered uh, with Jesus' followers that day. And the first that he lists were the 11 apostles. Remember, Jesus, our Judas had hung himself by this time. At the head of the list, we have Peter. That was Simon Peter. Remember, Jesus changed his name to Peter or Petros, which means rock. Now, by personality, this guy was bold and impetuous. Remember, Lord, if it really is there you out there, command me to come out onto the water. Come on out, Peter. He walked out, and as long as he was looking at Peter, he was fine, or Jesus, he was fine. But then afterwards, he said it looked around at the waves, he became afraid, and he began to sink. You know, that's the way it always is. When we turn our eyes off of Jesus and onto the circumstances, that's when we start to fear, and that's when we start to sink. Remember, this was the one apostle who pledged his unwavering loyalty to Jesus. He said, even if everybody else will fall away because of you, I will never fall away. But a couple hours later, when a servant girl identified him as one of the followers of Jesus, Peter denied even knowing him. That night, he denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed in the morning. Remember, Jesus had to confront him with his sin. And he did so by asking Peter one question three times. Peter, do you love me? Jesus forgave him and restored him to a place of leadership. Isn't it nice to know that even when we fail, and even when we falter, Christ is still committed to us? Well, a couple others elicited James and John. They were fishermen, like Peter. Their father's name was Zebedee, and their mother's name was Salome, she was actually the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So James and John were first cousins to Jesus. James was the first disciple to be martyred. John was the last one to die. Andrew, it was Simon Peter's brother. He's the one who introduced Peter to Jesus. Philip was from Bethsaida, the same hometown as Peter and Andrew. After Jesus called Philip, he went and found his friend Nathaniel to tell him that he had found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He retorted. 
Well, it's likely that Bartholomew is the same person as Nathaniel. Bartholomew means son of uh, uh, Telmai, and uh, it's likely that it's the same person that's listed. Well, Thomas, he's the one who refused to believe Jesus had risen from the dead until he saw him face to face. Matthew is also called Levi. He was the tax collector. And James, the son of Alphaeus, he's referred to as James the Less. Uh, his mother's name was also Mary, and he had a brother named Joseph. Simon the Zealot had been a member of a terrorist group that was trying to overthrow the Romans. And Judas, the son of James, sometimes is referred to as Judas, not Iscariot. He's called Thaddeus as well in the scripture. Now, along with these, Luke mentions uh, certain women who were there. He doesn't give their names, but we know that it would most likely include Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, Salome, Another woman in the Gospels identified as Mary. You may recall that Luke tells us that these were the women who supported Jesus out of their own financial means. And some of these ladies were the last ones to leave the cross when Jesus was crucified and the first ones to see the empty tomb when he rose from the dead. The last group mentioned is Jesus' family members. Now, Joseph evidently had died when Jesus was younger. Uh, we find his mother and brothers and sisters mentioned in the scripture, he had at least two script, uh, sisters, we know that. And the brothers that are mentioned are James and Jude and uh, si uh, Simeon and Joseph. Now, early on, they weren't believers. They actually thought Jesus was crazy. But after the resurrection, they came to faith. Jesus actually made a special appearance to James. So those were among the people who were gathered along with others. But why were they gathered? You know, people can gather for reasons both good and bad. A lot of government officials get worried when they see people, their citizens gathered uh, for any reason. Our Constitution guarantees the right of people to peacefully assemble to petition their government for redress and grievances. Well, these Christians weren't getting together to complain, but to praise God. Luke tells us that at the end of his gospel, as they were, after they had worshipped him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Well, they came together here in this room as an act of simple obedience to a clear command. Remember what Jesus told them back in verses 4 to 5? He said, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the, what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. now some people just can't follow simple, straightforward directions. Think about King Saul in the Old Testament. He disobeyed God's command, and then when he was confronted by his disobedience for not wiping out the Amalekites, as God said, he responded to Samuel, the prophet, by saying, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, Well, what then is the bleeding of these sheep in my ear and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, Oh, they, they, we brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we've utterly destroyed. He's lying. Samuel rebuked him and said, Has the Lord more delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. On another occasion, Saul was supposed to wait seven days for Samuel to arrive to perform the sacrifice before they went up to war against the Philistines. He got scared because Samuel didn't arrive right away, and so he offered up sacrifice himself, and that was a no-no. These two acts of disobedience cost Saul his kingdom. His lack of faith revealed in these two acts of disobedience cost him his soul. 
Here the disciples of Jesus were given a very simple command. Stay in Jerusalem and wait until the Spirit comes. They who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. O Lord, teach me to wait. They were waiting, but they weren't inactive. They were making use of their time. First of all, they were there for fellowship. You have to understand, Christianity is a team sport. It cannot be practiced in isolation from other believers. Do you know, there's lots of verses in the Bible, aren't there, that say things like, love one another. Do you know that command's found 16 times in the Bible? Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above each other. Build each other up. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Those are all commands which you cannot fulfill if you're not around other believers. I mean, zebras and wildebeest understand that there's safety if they stay with the herd. When you go out into the tall grass on their own, they become easy pickings for the lions. Peter warned his readers that we're to be alert, sober-minded, because your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. Hebrews 10, 23 says this. It says, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the, uh, to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promises. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good deeds. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. We have to be with each other. That's a scary world out there. This is the place where people encourage you. This is the place where people hold you accountable. This is the place where people care about you. We have to come together. Well, the second thing we learn, though, is that they spent their time praying. Look at what it says. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, as Christians, we should be praying by ourselves daily, but we also have to join together with other Christians to pray regularly. Why? I mean, is it because God can only hear you if you're in a big group? No. He hears everyone who prays to him through Christ. Well, then why do we have to pray with other people? Well, we pray with other people because, for one thing, we bear one another's burdens that way. I mean, when you hear of some struggle that some other Christian's going through that you're praying with, and you offer up prayers on their behalf, it helps to share their burden. Take a load off, Fanny. Take a load for free. Take a load off, Fanny. And, and, and put the load on right on me. It's also the case that when we pray together, then when God answers the prayers, we can rejoice together. I mean, people go to sports bars to watch their favorite football team together. Why? So that they can cheer together when they win, and so they can cry together when they lose. Well, this wasn't a one-and-done prayer meeting. They gathered continually, it says, to pray. And notice that they were not praying to Mary. They were praying with Mary. Well, becoming a prayer warrior takes discipline and hard work because the devil will do whatever he can to dissuade you from praying, whether it's through busyness or distractions or discouragement for not seeing answers come quickly. But you have to understand that when we're involved in prayer, we're involved in spiritual warfare. You remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20? He said this, Finally, be strong in the might of the Lord and in his power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. There's a real force out there, demonic forces. 
And Paul says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that in the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm, then, with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted for, uh, uh, with readiness, uh, that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up your shield of faith which you can, uh, by which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now listen to what he says. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the Lord's people. Remember when the angel came to speak to Daniel after he had been praying? It says this, a hand touched me, this is Daniel speaking, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you are highly esteemed. Consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words have been heard, meaning when he was praying. And I have come in response to them. But the prince of Persia, uh, uh, the Persian kingdom, resisted me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief prince, came to help me because he uh, uh, was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns the end time. You understand what's going on? He started praying, but for 21 days he got no answer. The angel didn't come to visit him to give him the answer. Why not? Because that angel was held back by another demon. There's a realm that goes on beyond us and above us that affects the things of this world. And you enter into battle in that realm when you pray. Prayer is what brings the power of God into our lives. And so a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We cannot open doors, but God can. We cannot change hearts, but His Spirit can. And he does in response to the prayers of God's people. James, the brother of the Lord, later, later on said this. He said, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. 19, or 1857, North Dutch Reformed Church in Lower Manhattan was having a period of decline. Older members were moving out and uh, new people or immigrants were replacing them, but they weren't interested in any kind of spiritual matters. Church responded by hiring a former business person named Jeremiah Lanfear as an evangelist to reach some of the new immigrants. After spending a week making his rounds, Lamphere changed direction and decided he'd ask a few business uh, friends of his to join in prayer for the community. Well, the first meeting took place on September 23, 1857. Six people attended. The second time they gathered, there were 20. The third time they gathered, there were 30 to 40. Their meetings went so well that Lamphere decided to make it a daily meeting and to expand it to a second building. In the meantime, the New York business community was experiencing a financial crisis. The apex occurred on October 13, 1857, when many of the banks in New York closed because of the lack of funds. By uh, October, the Fulton Street prayer uh, uh, meetings had expanded to upwards of 100 participants every day, five days a week. Other churches began to establish similar groups, and this spread from one city to the next. After a while, they had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people praying daily. Do you know as a result of that, a revival began to break out? And it's estimated that 475,000 new members joined Protestant churches 
in the next five years. But notice it all started with prayer. One of the historians said, there has never been a time of revival that did not begin with prolonged and persistent and fervent prayer. Now, one of the weaknesses of American churches is how little sustained corporate prayer there is. We pray a lot in our church, but not as much as we could and probably not as much as we should. But these people were all continually devoting themselves to prayer. A few days later, when Peter preached, 3,000 people were converted at one time. The last thing that we find the disciples doing as they were waiting for the Spirit was studying Scripture. Now, our text this morning doesn't specifically say that, but if you go on to the next section, it talks about how they were discussing how to replace Judas, the one who had betrayed Jesus. But to come to the conclusions that they did, they studied the Scripture and saw which ones applied to their situation. And then Peter, in the next chapter, when he's preaching the gospel and explaining the coming of the Spirit to the people who are gathered at Pentecost, he goes to the Scripture to explain what they were experiencing and seeing. Once again, it's the Scripture that interprets the events of our life. It's through the Scripture that we understand what's going on around us. So what were Jesus' followers doing as they were waiting for the Spirit? Well, first of all, they were following His command. Secondly, they were joining with each other for mutual support and encouragement. Third, they were constantly and earnestly praying for each other and for the ministry that lies ahead. And lastly, they were studying the Scripture, using the Word of God to interpret what they were experiencing at that time. Now, that's what the church is supposed to be doing today. We aren't waiting for the Spirit. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. But we're still to engage in these same activities as we seek to witness to Christ, for Christ to our family members in our workplace, among our schoolmates, and our community. And you know, if you were to dedicate yourself to those activities as a Christian, you would find that the purpose of your life would become clear and you wouldn't have to walk around confused like a couple of tramps wondering life, what life is all about. May God give us a sense of direction and purpose as we live for Christ. Because this is the way it's done. Quite simply. Let's pray. Our Father in God, there's a lot of people who are going through life without a clue what life is about, what it means. They just live. They just exist. And then they just die. And then they perish. Father God, we don't want to be that way. Jesus has given us our command, which is to be his witnesses, to tell people about him, to uh, disciple people so that they grow to be like Jesus, and to wait for him to return like the angel said that he most certainly would. Our Father God, we pray that you'd help us as a church to do that, as individuals to be disciplined, to be in places to hear the word of God and to pray and to ask and to encourage one another. And Father God, as these days become more difficult, we pray that we would shine even brighter and be more committed to the gospel message. So bless us now. Thank you that you've gathered us today to hear your word. And we pray that you'd make it come alive in our hearts. For we ask now in Christ's name, amen.